This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Today, you're hearing from Dr. Colin Chan, board-certified radiation oncologist, currently practicing medicine at Duke University. I was linked up with Dr. Champ through a member at the gym who went to medical school with Colin. And after looking at his content, I realized that this was definitely someone that I needed to have on. Colin's research dives deep into the link between lifestyle habits, nutrition, and how they can be such a powerful tool alongside treatment measures with cancer. Today, we get into his research, we get into his books, we get into the link between what he talks about and the prevention side of things. And we also get into some key popular topics like the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting and the differences between the two and the effects that our society and the food industry have on the choices we make and the difficulty it is for us to make some positive choices. We get into a whole host of things today. It was a really interesting conversation. Uh, Dr. Champ is really well-spoken, so well-educated, and I love his research. Whether you have a history with disease or a family member that has a history or you yourself just want to focus more on a healthy lifestyle, this episode is definitely for you. So check it out. Rate and review when you're done. Let me know what you think and enjoy. We are on. Colin, man, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it being on. Can we kick off with a little just background on on you and what you do and and how you got to doing what you do? Sure. So I am uh, in North Carolina. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology at Duke University. I treat mostly breast and lymphoma, breast cancer and lymphoma, and I research diet and exercise and the impact on, on cancer prevention and treatment. Uh, I started out uh, in Pittsburgh, PA, the city of champions, grew up there, uh, went to school in engineering um, for a while at MIT, was really into sports, working out, uh, wrote, wrote diets and exercise regimens up there. Biomedical engineering did not exist as of yet. That's kind of what my major basically was, kind of pieced together, worked on artificial organs, liked working with people a lot more than, than machines, so switched it up, went to med school after actually a short consulting gig in Chicago. And um, in med school, uh, was all over the map, thought I'd do orthopedic surgery based on my background. Ended up, uh, I fell in love with cancer, ended up in the cancer world as an oncologist. And everything came full circle when I realized how integral diet and exercise was, both in cancer treatment and cancer prevention. So kind of put me right back where I was, uh, was at the University of Pittsburgh coming out of residency and then uh, almost two years ago, uh, switched positions down here to Duke. Very cool. I feel like I don't hear that as often, people going, you know, switching to the medical field, just because it's so intense, the education is so intensive, right? Do you, do you see that more often than most people do? Or, um, you know, it's kind of an unusual start, isn't it? 
Yeah, I, I see it both ways. Uh, it's funny, I have, a, I have a cousin who's an engineer for, uh, for Budweiser who's actually looking to go back into medicine. Uh, okay. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, you, you certainly see it the, the other way as well. Um, but, you know, engineering, science, there, there's, there's a decent amount of overlap, uh, especially in biomedical engineering and artificial limb design and those kind of things. So I think we're seeing a lot of it both ways. It's, it's interesting. I was, uh, when I was on your page, on your webpage, I, I, cause we didn't talk about that the first time. It's the first time I noticed that. Well, I, and as, as my listeners know, and as you and I talked about, you know, a big motivator for me in this podcast was my father who passed of a glioblastoma, a brain tumor in 2013. So as much as I look forward to all my episodes, this is a topic that is really always on my mind. What made you go into cancer? Was there anything specific that got you up off of orthopedics and into that route? Yeah, there, so there's a couple things. Um, I mean, the, the, e- the easy answer is, you know, lifestyle was part of not what got me into oncology, but got me away from surgery. Uh, as much as I loved it, uh, I knew my family was going to be just of utmost importance to me. So if I couldn't be around them, you know, it could be the greatest job in the world, but I, I wasn't going to enjoy it. Um, so that, that was number one. And then, uh, you know, the other, the other issue with a lot of medicine is it, it's a lot of, well, it, it's funny because it, in this regard, it's come pretty full circle with me too. But uh, I always saw cancer patients as just really a need, really wanting whatever you can offer them to, to help to, you know, improve their symptoms, obviously try to cure them, et cetera. And it was just so impactful what you could do. Uh, and I found like the primary care physicians who are the, you know, the warriors of the medical field, really, I found difficulty in their position because so often it was trying to convince people, you know, you need to do this, you need to do this, please listen to me, I can help you out. And um, so so maybe part of it was a cop out, actually, that I, I just felt in the cancer world, uh, you're just providing so much of a difference. And I wasn't seeing that difference. I wasn't providing that difference to people in the primary care world. Uh, and I realize now that that was probably pretty, pretty wrong, pretty false, because uh, I'm doing exactly the same thing in the cancer world now, especially with the diet and exercise. Uh, uh, so so it, it, it's kind of interesting how it got me there. But uh, when I started training for for cancer, uh, for radiation oncology, uh, it was it's it, it was awesome. It, you just spend so much time with people. Uh, I'm, I'm Italian and, and and you basically are talking with people 80 percent of the time. So it's a nice field. Well, we do that pretty naturally, don't we? So (laughs) as my fellow Italian, (laughs) you know, and the lifestyle side, you know, it's when my dad was diagnosed. So this would have been 2011 because it was about 18 months from diagnosis through passing. I remember digging into everything. I mean, every piece of research I could possibly find. And granted, I probably wasn't, maybe I wasn't looking in all the right places either. But what I found was just all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, everything from from some stuff that I that hopefully we're going to talk about today, you know, decrease in carbohydrates and some stuff that maybe would have been legitimate, but very little on lifestyle, very little, I guess. It, it just wasn't a lot. And I'm not saying the research hasn't been there for longer than 2013, but, you know, what brought you into really the lifestyle side of it? Was it, was it new research when you were coming out? Yeah, what, what was it? Yeah, so, I, I mean, grow. Growing up, my, my grandfather was Austrian. Everyone else in my family was basically Italian and then some Irish in there as well. But uh, 
their, their background, food, food is huge, obviously, in, in Italian culture. My grandfather gardened. He, he grew everything we ate for a huge chunk of the year, except in the winter in Pittsburgh. I remember I was in, I can't remember if it was, I think it was, yeah, it was med school. He's in his 90s at this point, and I get this flaxseed in the mail, and he has a letter in there saying, this flaxseed comes from some random area in the world, and it has the highest ratio of omega-3 of any flaxseed. And, and the guy's in his 90s, and he's, he's sending me this stuff, and I'm a, I'm a physician, and uh, it, it just – just mind blowing, but um, but from him, from my my dad, my brother was big into sports, getting me into sports. Uh, I, I always realized how important it was to a be active and then b how important food was, uh, and so that really really pushed me uh, in that direction. And then when I started in the cancer world, it really was pushed in the other direction. You know, food played no part. Uh, we actually had an article that we wrote around 2011 looking at dietary recommendations for cancer patients during and after treatment. And I'm sure it was looking at a lot of the things you looked at, and it was all over the map. Most places didn't even mention anything. When they did, it totally countered each other. That On the West Coast, a bunch of the places said, eat whatever you can, don't lose weight. On the East Coast, mostly in the Northeast, uh, they said, you know, cardiac prudent diet works for everything. Even cancer patients should be eating low, low fat, high carb. Uh, so it was, it was just a mess. And, and part of it was, we just didn't, we don't know. And we, we didn't know. And part of it too, was because we ignored a lot of the data. People didn't think diet was that important over the last 30 years. So when we, I, I've, I've said this before in some of my lectures, when we submitted that article, that article blew my mind. I thought it was the most important you know, paper ever. Of course, I'm biased. I, I, I wrote it and it just got, <laughs> it got rejected everywhere we sent it. And, you know, the, the, the reviewer said there's no room for diet or exercise in the cancer world. There's no data to support it. And at that point, you really start to look and you say, hey, there is a lot of data. But if these are what high impact journal reviewers are saying, obviously they don't know the data. Mm-hmm. So there was a learning process that needed to be done here. And there was what we're seeing a lot this year is medicine is really afraid of having nuanced conversations, right? It's all black or white, right? You have, I mean, COVID has illustrated this to the fullest. I don't even want to get into COVID, but, uh, you know, everything's black or white and then you confuse everyone and no one knows what, what to say. Now, at the same time, if you get into too nuanced of a conversation, then we're right back where we started from. Uh, but at least we should be honest with people. And at that point, really, we didn't know what the answer was, but we should have been looking at it and we weren't. And so at that point, when I started giving these lectures, when I started researching diet, when I wrote that article, you know, half the crowd was throwing tomatoes at me. The other half were coming up afterwards and saying, with you 100%, how do we advance this field? There, there was just such a, a push and pull that at that point I realized, and at that point I was also looking for for jobs, that I realized if when I interviewed at places, if they didn't support diet and exercise research, I wasn't I wasn't going there. And a lot of places didn't, but but a lot of places did. And now, you know, 10 years later, there's a lot more information out there. We we certainly haven't cleared some things up, but um, there's been some low-hanging fruit that we've 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 certainly figured out. Um, and I, I don't want to go too long on this question, but the other aspect in the cancer world is there's there's a wide spectrum. You, you can't even view cancer as one thing. You know, there's a million types of cancer basically, 
an early stage, you know, I've, I've women with early stage breast cancer that are totally healthy and it's, you know, DCIS or stage one, it's curable in 95% of people. And they want to know what we can do to ensure that. And, you know, we, we discuss all these things, but the effect may not be as big. And then you have, as you've experienced for GBM, which was the first study we published on the ketogenic diet, it, it, it's it's a beast, and we, we've thrown so much stuff at it, and e- even radiation. We've thrown massive doses of radiation. Uh, we, we've seen a three-month benefit with with Temidar. That was the last study showing a benefit in like the last you know 20 years. So if you can barely touch it with something like that, we were thoroughly convinced at the time that if you put people on a ketogenic diet, it, it's just gonna it's gonna be the magic you know, diet, it, it's going to work. And, um, we, we saw that that wasn't happening. And then you start to realize, like, it kind of brings you down to earth where, you know, some of these are just, they're just Goliath and, and, and we don't even know where we are yet with, with, in terms of David. And then, you know, other treatments, it's going to have much more of an impact. And what's probably going to happen for some of these bears is that it's going to be combination. You know, it's going to be this diet, it's going to be this treatment, it's going to be a whole conglomerate of things. But until we start asking those questions and, and testing them scientifically, we're just not going to know. Uh, sure. Yeah. And wanted to go back on one of your earlier points. This is what we were told kind of it didn't matter. You know, because I, I asked, you know, I, I want I was trying to do everything I could. So I, I went to her, who was an, an excellent physician. You know, I, this isn't we were at one of the best hospitals in the country. You know, I'm in Chicago. So we we're at North Shore. It was, you know, it's a fantastic hospital. But that was the answer when I brought up some of these dietary things that I read was, at this point, just be comfortable. Do, do what makes you happy. And, and I'm not saying maybe that wasn't, I, I don't want to knock the advice because I'm not in a position to do so, but that is what we were told at the time. Yeah, it, it's it's so difficult because you, you don't want to feed people something that, that doesn't work. But then at the same time, you know, I, I, I don't treat GBM anymore, but I used to a lot. And I, I got a lot of people that would come in and say, I read this, I'm going to do it. Do you want to help me or not? And, and so those are the people where we obviously do help them. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen some, you know, we've seen the, the initial study that we published. We've we saw some crazy outcomes that we hadn't seen before. We obviously can't say it was from the diet. I mean, I, I had one patient that she recurred. Uh, she went on the diet. She she did some other things, too. I hadn't heard from her. So I assume the worst. And then her sister messaged me on social media like eight years later and said, no, she's alive. She's doing well. And it's just, you know, we can't say what it, what it was from, but but it was certainly the longest uh, living person I've known with a recurrent GBM. Uh, so, so you do see those kind of things. So you don't want to discredit it, but you also can't make blanket recommendations on an, on an N equals one. So it is a it's a fine line. But when people are motivated, you know, we, we dig in, we sit down and we, we talk about the research and say, this is the benefit. This is the potential harm. And it for some people, it is very empowering. You know, it's it's, it's not you sit there and I'm going to hit you with radiation and the Medoc's going to hit you with Temidar and you're not going to do anything. No, it's you know, you're going to do your part. Uh, we're going to do our part. and We'll work at this together. Yeah, well, and I love that approach because in the end, what it's you're, what you're offering is health, right? You're saying, let's just get your body in a better position. You're not promising it's going to work, but you're not doing anything saying, listen, this could help, this could harm you in other ways, but maybe help you here. This is stuff that you're recommending a lot of the same stuff that I'm recommending to my general healthy population to lose weight, gain muscle, get more energy, you know, and maybe prevention, which we'll get to. 
spot on. You're hundred percent. And that, that's what in our breast cancer protocols, we have a, an intermittent fasting one opening up. We have a weightlifting one that, that COVID has kind of, uh, put on hold, but it's exact same thing that you just said. We don't know if lifting these heavy weights is going to cure you of breast cancer or improve your chance of cure, but it sure as heck's going to make you a lot healthier. It's going to help you to, to not break a hip in 20 years. It's going to help you to be more muscular. You know, same thing with, with weight loss. It may help your outcome because there is some data that, that shows that. But again, it's going to make you a heck of a lot healthier and a heck of a lot happier. So it's a no-brainer. Yeah, well, and that data, that's, I had two pieces of that data I wanted to ask you about. I guess they go together, but I'll ask them separately. One, you and I talked about the idea of people who have increased muscle mass. And, and is it higher success rates? You can explain it better than I can. So, yeah, so we, you know, we've been stuck in this BMI body mass index, you know, height, height over uh, weight. We've been stuck in that for a long time, because it's very easy to do, right? We take a height and a weight on all of our patients. Um, you know, we don't put them through a DEXA scan, a CT scan or a bod pod or something like that. But if you do those latter things, you get their muscle content and you get their fat content. What we're finding is a higher ratio of muscle mass to fat mass correlates with improved outcomes. So that's in breast cancer, improved breast cancer specific outcomes. I think there's a study in colon cancer not long ago. There was a mortality study that came out like four days ago or something. And I always tweet these and I put like hashtag lift heavy weights. But, but yeah, we, we know that adipose tissue gives off inflammatory factors. Adipose tissue is necessary. We all, we all need some fat tissue, but, but too much of it causes you know, dysregulation. It causes increased uh, estrogen, other hormones and it causes increased inflammation. What we're seeing is muscle mass does the exact opposite. It's basically like an anti-inflammatory organ. And when you lift heavy weights, when you work out intensely, it actually secretes some factors that overall reduce your amount of inflammation. So it makes sense that the more of that you have and the less of the bad stuff you have, the better you're gonna do. So we need to figure out ways to improve that. And that's where you know the diet and exercise, it all comes full circle. Okay. Cause, yeah, because the second half was the video I listened to on your on your page um, the other day, and it was the prevalence of adipose tissue decreasing the positive effects of the radiation. So is it, I guess, is, is it just repeating what you just said? Is it both so, the increased adipose tissue effects or is it the muscle mass that? So that's a, yeah, so that was a study um, we looked at in pancreatic cancer that we're, we're getting radiation. We actually found that hasn't not been published yet. So I'll throw in that caveat, but we found it okay. reduced. We found an increased risk of local recurrence in patients with higher, it was BMI though, but pa okay. patients with higher, we assumed that meant higher adipose tissue. These are patients from Pittsburgh. So okay. I, would, I, I can't make too many generalizations, but you, you've seen enough Steeler games to know that <laughs> <laughs> high BMI, there's usually uh, a lot of adipose tissue. Um, so yeah, so there, there are, inf these inflammatory factors do correlate with, with worse outcomes from specific uh, treatments, whether that's chemo, surgery, or radiation. And, and those are studies that we're only beginning to, to do. It's so, it's just so interesting. And then you mentioned, again, I'm, I'm referring a lot to your talks, which I'm definitely going to, you know, I hope people go listen to after this because you should. The idea that a lot of these tendencies you've studied have gone along with treatment, right? So certain lifestyle changes along with chemo radiation, Sometimes it's a strong link and strong combination. Absolutely, yeah. The, we we really have it. There's no diet or exercise that that replaces current treatments, 
and I'm not saying that is some like conspiracy theorist. We just we don't have that evidence. If we did, I would I'd be out there with a with a sign on the side of the highway saying, "Hey, you don't you don't need to come to me anymore. Just go go uh, exercise." And, but yeah, this is in conjunction with some treatments, and even the the, the study we looked at in, in GBM, just just a simple couple patient study to, to show that it was safe, a ketogenic diet was safe. But what we did show is that even when patients were on steroids, uh, steroids cause an increase in blood glucose levels and high blood glucose levels correlate with worse outcomes in a bunch of different types of cancer, but including, including GBM, especially during radiation therapy. So we showed that if you put people on the diet, it can offset that increase in, in glucose. We don't know if that will change outcomes. But yeah, there, there are certainly ways that these can can interact with treatment. There's a couple breast cancer and prostate cancer studies where they put people through exercise regimens during treatment, and it actually reduced the side effects. It reduced fatigue, which is one of the most common side effects from radiation. So the, the point being is that we do need to do these things alongside standard treatments. Yeah, well, and it makes sense to me, right? Once you've come to a certain point, not that you've come too far, but it will take other methods along with lifestyle, like lifestyle. I mean, it's, I, and there's no bigger advocate besides maybe you <laughs> than me, but I guess it does speak to the power of it pr- possibly as a preventative tool, right? Oh, if, for sure. If this is so huge alongside it as a treatment tool, if we can get a handle on some of these healthy habits prior to, maybe we decrease the odds. I, again, a lot, I know a lot goes into that in genetics and a lot, a lot of other factors but maybe we decrease those odds in the first place. Yeah, I agree 100%. That, that's kind of the double-edged sword with the research where it's it's easier to see, does this affect the outcome of cancer treatment because it's happening in a short amount of time and you can report on it. The preventative studies are so difficult because they're taking place over decades. But I think this is where the bigger bang for your buck is. Like even a, a bit tangential here, but like the polyphenol studies or turmeric or any of these these studies of, of chemicals that, that may enhance the immune system. And there's all these preclinical studies that say that they fight and beat cancer and yada, 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 but they're all in a Petri dish, so they don't actually show that. Uh, but the mechanisms that they do change are very intriguing as a cancer preventative. So I think in that, that regard, it makes much more sense. Like intermittent fasting, the, the metabolic changes that happen, people that you know, either they're inter- whether they're intermittent fasting on a ketogenic diet when their glucose bottoms out and their insulin drops and, you know, ketones are released. These are metabolic messengers. There's a lot of things that happen and a lot of pathways that may reduce the chance of a cell turning to a cancer or may increase the body's ability to kill that cell if it turns into a cancer. But that is much harder to show in studies. And so that's why you just you just don't see them. Yeah, well, you, you hope that, but if you don't get it, then you just don't know, right? I mean, you're not, most people that don't get sick don't go get looked at, right? There's not. Exactly. And even, you know, some of these epidemiology studies are not great. And even like the the fruit and vegetable studies, which, you know, everyone touts, and I'm, I'm not saying that fruits and vegetables aren't good for you, uh, but, the, you know, the fruit studies haven't shown great benefit at all. And the, the vegetable studies are a little bit better, specifically like the sulfur Mm-hmm. Uh, type vegetables, but but the signal isn't huge either. You know, it's it's not like like the smoking studies where you see in, in some groups a three thousand percent increase in lung cancer if you smoke. We're, we're just not seeing those those differences in signals. It's it's much more subtle. So the good and the bad news is you know it affects things, but if you do have you know if you do get cancer if you do get some 
disease. It's, it's not like, you know, you did it yourself or you, you know, it, it's all your fault. Like the studies clearly show that's not the case. You can put things in your favor and I think it makes sense. We all need to worry about something, right? We all need to focus on something. It might as well be that, even if it's, you know, according to these, the luck studies that came out of Hopkins, they said we have like 30% control. I still think that's a pretty decent, decent amount. But we aren't seeing huge signals in the preventative studies. And, and maybe we're just not not doing them right. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, genetics can help increase or decrease odds, but they don't have to be your end result, right? We do have some level of control over how they're how they affect us. Exactly. Then you have this the rabbit hole, you know, epigenetics, so you can turn on and off your genetics. And then you're, I mean, yeah. you, you know, your head explodes. There, there's just so much input and output. Well, so if, if you have any referrals from uh, any geneticists, let me know, because that's been something I've been trying also to, to get on as a topic here. And I need to find, okay. need to find the yeah, right person. For sure. <laughs> can we dig in? I want to dig into two things you've mentioned a few times um, a little deeper, because I know they're they're just common words right now, in, especially in, in health and fitness, but in society in general. One's the keto diet. So can we speak on it both as a treatment tool, or at least a tool that goes alongside treatment, mm-hmm. a, a tool all by itself, so a, a weight loss or maybe preventative tool, as some have, have used it, and you know, maybe the differences or where, where it has its place, or maybe where it doesn't have its place. Sure. Yeah, so the, the ketogenic diet is very well researched in the weight loss world and you can't really argue with it it, it certainly works people will say oh it's, it's not sustainable and the, you know that's a whole other whole other argument but a, but a well-executed ketogenic diet certainly works to lose weight and you know jeff volick's kind of the, the i'd say the modern day pioneer uh, my buddy eric westman uh, my buddy will yancey all just great great people um you know they show this in, in randomized studies and then Jeff uh, with Steve Finney started Verta Health, and they're helping people get on ketogenic diets, and they're actually helping people immensely. So it certainly has its role there. I, th- I don't even think that's arguable. The question is, where can we extend beyond there? So, so diabetes is a is a, a low hanging fruit as well, no pun intended, and and it works there as well because it it lowers your blood sugar. Same thing we saw in our GBM study. You put people on steroids instead of their blood sugar going through the roof. It stays low because you know you're not getting it in your food, et cetera, et cetera. So it has a role there as well. Can it reverse diabetes? That that's a whole other argument. Then there's offshoots from there. So you know these these ketone bodies, they're metabolic messengers. They they turn some things on, they turn some things off. So there's the whole Alzheimer's cognitive um, benefits, et cetera. Uh, I think there probably are some. I think there's pretty decent data there. Um, not high impact randomized trials like in the weight loss world, uh, but I think it does make sense. Um, it's you know there's there's clearly benefits to ketones in terms of the brain, but again I think it's probably more of a preventative thing, uh, and there's not a lot of great data that I know on that or conclusive data, but that's that's kind of my my view on it. And then you know as we scale over to well we we could say the the cachexia world. So there's some evidence that ketones decrease muscle wasting. This is mostly preclinical data in mice and other things. There is potentially some data in humans, though this is older data, and it's really hard to get people on a ketogenic diet. So these are actually studies that we are performing currently. So give me like three years and I'll answer that a little more conclusively. 
but I have I have my my bets on it. Uh, and then, you know, the last one is can it improve cancer outcomes? And we we wrote a review article um, a couple years back about how it's called calories and. I forget what it's called, but we we didn't mention ketones because at that point, if you mentioned ketones, you got like, you know, kicked out of the room. (laughs) (laughs) But we talked about the overlap of dietary changes and radiation and how it could potentially improve outcomes. We actually have a bunch of these these papers. And, you know, there there are studies that say high blood glucose, you do worse with treatment, low blood glucose, you do better. These are just associative studies, association studies. So so we don't know, but we know you can lower people's blood glucose with a ketogenic diet, or you can at least stop it from being high. How much you can actually lower it's a whole nother a whole nother argument. And I'd argue for most people they don't actually have that low of a blood sugar when they're on a ketogenic diet. But it does lower insulin. Insulin is it's it's a, at least a semi-anabolic hormone. Uh, and we know there's a bunch of studies in the cancer world where they block insulin. So again, it's we don't have a smoking gun, but if you can block insulin and improve cancer outcomes and you're putting someone on a diet that lowers insulin, it should ideally help. But, you know, we, we just don't know until we until we test it. And, and even um, in our earlier studies, we were so sure of it. Uh, and I've seen we published, you know, we published one on humans and I've seen plenty of people in the clinic where the mouse data is great. There's some bad mouse data. Adrian Sheck has some good mouse data. It shows quite a benefit, and it just it just didn't. We don't see it translating into the clinic. And people said, "Well, they're not doing the diet closely enough." I've had plenty of people who are very smart who unfortunately had that diagnosis and were on the diet very thoroughly that saw the exact same survivals. Um, you know, we we saw some infrequent people going beyond, uh, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't something we saw normally. So I would say in the cancer world, we don't have any good evidence that it that it helps. We don't have necessarily evidence on the flip side that it makes things worse. So if you're willing to do it, be safe. Um, but if people out there that are saying we're going to metabolically manage your your cancers, et cetera, we, we don't really have great data to, to support that as of yet. Sure. And you can see where people can get confused, you know, because there's, there's keto and then there's plant-based. You know, there are people, there's so many things out there and there's so much research on, not research, there's so many opinions on mm-hmm. how each is defined. So, and this is something that I battle every day with just, again, a healthy general adult population and my athletes that come in and I've heard rumors about each and completely separate the two as if there's no overlap between being able to have healthy plants in your diet or being keto. You know, and so I think that's something I'd like to clear up with you too, is you you can have a high vegetable diet. You can have a lot of good plants that really give you good things and still be keto. Yep. It's that, uh, you're not allowed to have nuanced conversations anymore, right? It's got to be, uh, got to be one or the other. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I mean, the other, I had this discussion with, with Eric Westman when we were at dinner one night. And the whole other question is, there's the benefits of low carb. And then there's like, potentially the benefits of keto and then there's keto sounding cooler and more catchy and then all these people that are on keto that aren't actually even keto <laughs> so there's the whole like and that's the nuanced conversation no yeah. one wants to have right it's right. like we my wife and i went to this to to get a car and the car dealer had no clue what we did but he's like telling us all about the keto diet 
<laughs> I love these conversations because I, I just play dummy. I have no clue what I did for a living. And he's going through his diet, which was not keto at all, like 0% keto. <laughs> it was barely low carb. And, you know, that, that was the nuance that before you're on a, a junk high carb diet, now you're on a lowish carb diet. You're eating plants. You're eating mostly real food. You cut out processed crap. So you're going to get healthier based on what you're doing. Now, you know, with your athletes, now are you going to go in the gym and, you know, deadlift 550 pounds or get your body fat down to three? You know, that's a whole nother. Right. That conversation right. needs to be really nuanced. Right. Um, right. But but for the, the 95 percent of the population, uh, they don't even need to go that far. You know, they don't need to be testing their their P strips and all, all these kind of things. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so my, my, my recent book, uh, Leonardo's legacy was basically yeah. that whole thing because we were, we were so entrenched in the keto world, uh, getting attacked by the opposite side. I, I gave this, I did a, um, a talk with, um, uh, what the grain brain, who's grain brain guy, uh, Perlmutter, Perlmutter, uh, and then, Sinatra, Steven Sinatra. Okay. And then um, who's the other, the How Not to Die? Oh, I'm reading it right now. Um, Dr. Uh, uh, shoot. Gregor. Yes. Thank you. Because I was going to blank. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Perlmutter and I were kind of on the same page. Sinatra was like, smart dude, nice guy. Uh, maybe a little talking about some different thing. And Gregor's just like, you know, polar opposite on the other end. And then uh, it, it was all... There was no name. It was all fun and yada, yada, yada. And then after Gregor's like wrote these articles kind of attacking us, like saying how crazy it was that we were making these recommendations. And, and all I was kind of recommending was like eat the way my grandparents and your grandparents and people have eaten for thousands and thousands of years. So it's, it's pretty hard to say that's that crazy. Right. But stuff like that confuses the heck out of people to, to circle back to your comment. It's like, I have to either be this this plant-based, you know, total vegetarian or vegan, which like 0.001% of the population can actually follow that that strictly, right? The right. even the these vegan groups, uh, I forget what the number of dropout is, even in in Cali in the um like the Eventist area. Uh and it's you know, same thing with hardcore keto. Like I said, they're not even keto. So they're fighting about stuff and they're not even on the you know, they're not even on the side they're saying they're on. Um, so, so a lot of the book, I got these questions so often, a lot of the book was that where it's like, I fully recommend green leafy and colorful, colorful vegetables to everyone, whether they're keto, whether they're plant, whether they're whatever, because the same mechanisms by which those vegetables are good for you are the same similar mechanisms. Why, why exercise is good for you and fasting is good for you and keto is good for you. And even Gregor, half the stuff he's recommending is so you can't say one is good for you and the other is terrible when it's a Venn diagram and a big part of it's overlapping. Yeah, right. Well, and with one big overlap that no one really wants, for some reason, nobody wants to bring it to into light. And you already said it before, in any any popular diet out there, processed food needs to go. Simple, yeah. su simple sugars need to go. So I think anyone that gets a benefit out of any any real diet, you know, that, that comes with some healthy eating and some calorie restriction has probably eliminated those things. So I'm not saying that any of the diets are, are more right or wrong than the other, but, but there's definitely the commonality that we need to all focus on no matter what. Yeah. yeah let's, uh, let's, 
stop making this a minefield that you have to tiptoe through and <laughs> find some commonality and just push to make people healthy. And it, yes. it's even like the guidelines, you know, everyone's fighting what they should say this or they should say that. I, I wrote an article, just blow up the guidelines. Like they're never going to be correct. Like how long can you do the wrong thing? Just blow them up and, you know, teach people from day one. Like we, we teach all these things in class to kids. We don't teach them how to be healthy, right? Just yes. teach the lifestyle, <laughs> teach kids how to eat, teach people how to cook. You know, don't don't teach them to use their phone to get takeout from uh, Uber. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to divert. From, I have a second half of that, uh, the other topic that I want to bring up. But I listened to you talk about the a little bit. I'm going to call it hypocrisy. You didn't use this word, but I'm going to of some hospitals who are recommending certain diets. But then the vending machine is still required to keep certain amounts of, of Coke and these other things in there. And it goes to the food industry in general. And I, I'm definitely one that believes that, you know, the, the effect that the food industry as a business has on, on marketing and people's beliefs oh, yeah. and what they see every day in grocery stores and everything we're trying to teach comes with such a battle because when people leave your office, when they leave my gym, it isn't friendly. It isn't easy for them to take the recommendations that they had when they were within your four walls. Oh yeah. And it's, uh, it, it's so funny because when you so that that's an article we wrote, and, but when you when you mention like oh the you know the big businesses they want us sick they're out there and it's like oh it's a conspiracy theory and it's like no it's all around us it's it's not a conspiracy at all it's it's directly in your face and and when we so that article that just to give you some background we um I had a, just a great, really, really brilliant student uh, working with me who's now a radiation oncology resident at the University of Maryland, Chris. And so, Chris, we, we were trying to quantify the, the junk they were serving at hospitals. You know, re- really wanted to get fired, I guess, from my, from my job. <laughs> but, so we start – I start piecing it together and he's like, hey, I called up the VA because if you do a freedom of information – Freedom of Information uh, Act request. They have to tell you what they're doing. So he puts in and says, what are you putting in your vending machines? And the guy says, well, that depends on what Pepsi or Coke mandates that we put in them. So we're like, wait, what? And he said, yeah, we don't own the vending machines. Pepsi and Coke own them and they put in whatever they want, but they have Actually, they don't put in whatever they want. They give us a list. They have to put in a certain number of the typical junk you'd expect. Mm-hmm. And then they have the alternatives. And it's like Mellow Yellow and, you know, RC Cola and the stuff from like the 80s. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so we have these pictures of the PDFs of what they have to show. This is in our VA where we're paying for people's health care and they're feeding them junk that right. directly goes against the dietary recommendations where they're telling people not to eat added sugar and then they're selling it in the hospital. Like what the heck do you expect people to do? Like, yeah, you're, you're, you're playing games with people. And the craziest thing was when we now, maybe in the past, that other article, they weren't ready to talk about nutrition. So it, it, it eventually went into a, a decent journal. This article, I thought this was like, this is it. I, I, I wrote it up with Chris, another one of our med students. I'm like, this is it. This is going somewhere big. And so the, the way the review process works, you send it to a journal. The head of the journal says, oh, this is this is of interest or this is not. 
And if they say it's of interest, they say it's, it's in review. I send it to some reviewers. You'll hear the comments. And then you get these lists of comments and they, they kind of, they usually tear your paper to shreds and it's like a, a punch to your ego and you go through it all and you're super nice. You respond and say, Oh, thank you. That was such a great thing to bring up. I've corrected it now and yada, yada, yada. And so the first journal was a really high impact journal and you, when they reject you, it's like an automatic rejection and it's, it's a whole pair. Thank you so much. Please in the future, uh, don't, don't let, don't make this not allow you to not submit here again or blah, blah. I wasn't getting those. I was getting personalized emails being like, this is really interesting. However, we can't put this in our journal because, and then they just said some weird as the one lady's like, well, you didn't look at, you just looked at VAs. You didn't look at other hospitals. So we, we can't send this out for review. They never respond to you ever. Right. They, they give you that. And so it happened again and again and again. And I actually called, uh, uh, Richard Feynman about it. Who's, who's a diet researcher. And I said, these are views, these responses in themselves are a paper that's, that's, I mean, I would be banished. I'd be like blacklisted, but at one after I got three more where again, that, that lead editor of a huge journal yeah. wrote me a personalized email about why they can't review or publish this. It was very, it was, it was like the, uh, Robin hood, uh, the stock, you know, shutting, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. shutting down their stocks, knowing it's going to put them out of business. You're thinking like, hey, who who's behind him saying <laughs> you got to do this? It was very revealing that, you know, these these big billion dollar companies are obviously the ones pulling the strings here. And it's to a degree, you almost feel bad for these people because they want their journal to, to have integrity and, and publish good, good articles. But, but, you know, that, you know, at the same time. Yeah. They have people paying for their advertisements that can threaten to stop. Well, and that's why I don't think the conspiracy theories, quote unquote, are are that far fetched because it's it's business. I'm not saying it's ethical. I'm not saying it's moral. But in the end, it's 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 business. People have money going flowing out. There's jobs at stake. There's people working. You know, there's there, there's a lot that goes into why certain foods land on shelves and why certain research gets approved and why it's, there's, there's yeah. a lot that goes in. But really, it all comes down to money, right? That's that's the end of it. They need their stock to keep going up to make, you know, the right. stockholders happy. And it, it's a shame because I'm not saying like, like Coca-Cola is not inherently evil. Like, you know, when right. my grandfather in the fifties was like back from the war and he would snap open a little, a little tiny <laughs> glass yeah. bottle of Coke, like that was fine. Right. And then it just had to keep growing. And now there's, you know, they own everything and there's 50 gallon, you know, whatever, 7-Eleven it's just unfortunate that it's yeah. it's turned into such a monster. Yes, and, and fortunate is the right word, and it's scary, and again, makes makes our jobs, makes it harder to help people. Yeah, 100%. Yet, the education's there, but unfortunately, it's, it's hard for people to make the right decisions when they're so surrounded by yeah. by and, the, the ease to make the wrong decision. Yeah, and, and you can't do that, right? As a, as a small business owner, you can't say, don't drink Coke, and then have a Coke machine in your lobby. Yeah, absolutely people, right. Like Mike's crazy. I'm not going back to his place. No, if I have an event here and I happen to let a pizza come in, my members will be all over me. Yeah, <laughs> they should. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's just, it's interesting. I, I just had this talk with my brother yesterday. The bigger everything gets, 
the more interest groups are in and the more of what's the interest of actually us, which are by nature the smallest, right. uh, you know, we just get drowned out. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can go on that forever, but I'm going to divert yes. back to where we were because it'll probably lead us right back to where we are now again. But the other big keyword is intermittent fasting. So it's another one I think we can maybe help clarify for people a little bit. I know the research there is, again, all over the place in terms of types and which type has an effect. I did, was it last Was it last year? Maybe it was before that. I know UIC here had a study on a fluctuation between 110% of your daily recommended intake in calories down to 25%. And it was just an alternating day diet. But there's so many out there, right? There's 12 hours on, 12 hours off. There's the eight-hour eating window. And then there's things like long fasts. You know, people that do anywhere from 72 hour to things like 21 or more days. There's so many versions. When you are talking about intermittent fasting, is there a specific version that you tend to speak to or research that tends to, that you tend to lean on? Yeah, so there's great question. So intermittent fasting, which is oftentimes the, the PC term for low carb or ketogenic diet, because a lot of times that's, that's really what people are doing. Right. Uh, and it makes intermittent fasting much easier when your blood sugars are not a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. But like everything else we were saying, we don't know what the optimal intermittent fasting window is. So what, what we're doing in our protocol and what I tell people is just skip a meal. And, and, and generally dinner or around, around obviously around a bedtime because you, you, know, you get hopefully eight or nine hours in. Um, but, but if you skip dinner, you usually get, if you just eat lunch the next day, you know, you're talking a 16 to 18 hour fast. Right. Does it need to be longer? There's no evidence to show that. Does it, can it be shorter? Probably there's, there was a study that came out recently showing for short term fast, which basically just means eating how everyone ate for the last 8 million years, not, not grazing all day long for a short, short term fast. They didn't see some of the metabolic changes that they thought there was still NRF2 upregulation, which is kind of a, a cellular alarm that, that makes our cells kind of get rid of the junk. So there's, there's probably some benefits there down to, you know, it's 16 to 18 hours. We're going to see what we see in our study. Does it need to be 24, 48? You know, we, we don't know and you don't make money off of that. So people have to have these pictures and oh this fast or this fast or this name. Like first off is a, is a side note. You shouldn't be paying anyone to tell you about fasting. Like there's no, this is not a money making. And if, if they are like, you, you, you go look somewhere else, but yeah. there, there's really not good data. So I would say fasting that you can actually do, you know, if, if you're fasting and I, I know someone who was fasting so long that she stopped having her period. So I was like, you probably shouldn't be fasting that long. I don't care what guru, you know, influencer online says, uh, you probably shouldn't be fasting that long. So first off, just like in my, in the cancer world, don't do anything that's not safe. So, so keep it safe. And then the other, you know, it, to some point, if you're doing two hours, you're not, or three hours, you're not fasting anymore. You're just not eating in between meals. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. You know what my grandfather did, but to elicit these metabolic responses, you know, you, you do need your blood glucose to drop down. You do need your insulin to drop down. Some people would argue that you do need to start hitting ketosis. And, and then there's there's the, the semantics argument where maybe it's not even the fasting, it's just that you're getting less food in, right? Or you're eating a 
you're intermittent fasting with a low carb diet. So you're just not eating as much or you're not eating as much junk or you're not eating as much junk in between the fast because you know that if you eat junk and then fast, you feel terrible. Right. So that I'm not trying to uh, elude your question. I think probably 16 to 18 hours is my preferred because anything more than that makes people crazy. Uh, and, And I do that, you know, in our study, we're trying to get people to do it four times a week, but we don't know what's a good, you know, the, our one nutritionist said, let's have everyone do it every day. And I'm like, there's, I can't do that. If I can't do it, I can't ask patients to do it. So I think four times a week is a stretch, but if you need to lose weight, I think it'd be great. I think for some people probably if you do it once or twice a week, it's fine. And that's generally what I do. Interesting. You know, it's such a, I'm asked about it maybe more than anything else. That might be the most popular thing I'm asked about coming in these doors. Hmm. And it's something that over the years I've been, I've been hesitant to use with clientele one because of everything you just said, there's just, there's, there's no one thing that I can say, do this. Mm-hmm. Some would also argue that I'm not a dietitian, you know, that, you know, where, where I get this advice from. But the biggest reason to be honest is more that people have such a hard time with dietary control as it is. People are so all over the place that I worry more about people just making some consistent, good decisions on whatever they do eat, whenever they do eat it than I do about timing. So I guess you're differently motivated once you're, once they're in your office, they're differently motivated, right? They're probably more apt to say, okay, well, this might maybe save my life. I I should probably listen for the people that I see. I really try and I I feel like I need to see them in more control in general of their decisions before I can feel like they're going to stick to something so regimed because normally they end up doing a fast and then coming out of it. So I don't want to say wrong, but in a way that's, that almost offsets the benefits they might've gotten from the fast. hundred percent, hundred percent. If yeah, if we're telling people they need to do some, some crazy amount, like the multiple day stuff is out for like 99.99999% of the population. Right. But you know, if we're telling them that from the start, we're going to lose them. Yeah. So, you know, if you can, that's why in our, in our study, we thought that if we simply said skip a meal, and that's kind of how I started to do it. And you can choose breakfast, you can choose dinner. Don't count any, don't have a day of 25%. I, I can't do that. I can't figure out a 25% deficit and count. Anytime, yes. people, yeah. Once you have people counting calories, they're they're gone. Yes. And, and that's the same for me. Like, I'm not gonna sit there and figure some complicated, calc- just don't eat dinner. And if you can do it, great, see how you feel, and then we'll go from there. Right. Uh, I, I totally agree with that strategy. Yeah. Well, and to circle back around, do that and cut out the processed foods and the simple sugars while you're at it. <laughs> and you, yeah, and, yeah. And you'll probably see some good stuff come back around. Yeah, and, and the other cool thing is, like, for people who go on hikes and do outdoor activities and things like that on the weekends, sometimes it's actually, it's nice to not be controlled by food. Like, my wife and I, when we take our daughter out, you know, we get up, we'll pound a coffee, and then we'll go for a several-hour walk and you know, work out and do it and then come back and not even think of, you know, then we'll have lunch. It's just, we don't have to stop and be like, wait, I have to make a breakfast today and spend 30 minutes doing that. And it's, it's, it's freeing to not have to eat all the time. And so you could, we could have a whole different argument. I mean, the philosophers knew this, the religious, you know, clerics knew this, et cetera. We could have a whole other argument about the the mental benefits, but, but it's why you kind of have to see what works for you and go from there. I, you know, I agree. When people come back with, with how many calories and all that and how much protein, just make good decisions. 
Yeah. Eat the, eat the right foods off the right lists the majority of the time, and you'll probably be okay. Exactly. At least as a starting point. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, before we start um, wrapping up, I want to talk about where people can find you because, I again, I've, I've dove deep into your content, and I think everyone else should too. So where are the best places? Uh, thanks. So colinchamp.com is my website. So that, that has my my musings, my articles, kind of what's on my mind. Those are not my science. My scientific articles are all on PubMed. I usually list them on my, my website as well, but periodically. My newsletter is actually the most kind of uncut. With, with everything going on, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more scared to even kind of write what I'm thinking online because you just never know what you know, what, what people are going to, going to have issues with. Right. Uh, so my, yeah, my newsletter, I try to be a little more transparent as to what, what's, what's on my mind in the last, uh, it's funny, the last three months I've really been vocal about what's on my mind. I think people actually appreciate that. So the newsletter is a good, a good source. And then, um, my books, misguided medicines, a general view at, at, um, some of the things we tell people that we probably shouldn't. And then from a cancer diet aspect uh and cultural aspect uh my book leonardo's legacy was the latest that that's been like a f- four to five year journey of a, of a book so it's been a beast to to finish but that came out recently very cool well i actually was on amazon today and uh and threw them both in the cart so awesome I'm, thanks I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into both of them colin this has been really awesome man thanks a lot for taking the time today Thanks for having me on and keep keep doing what you're doing because because you're the one making the difference out there and, and, and we in medicine appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that. I hope we can work together again sometime. And in three years, when that next study comes out, we'll jump back on and uh, we'll talk about it. Sounds good. I will stick around for a second for my listeners. Thank you very much. Go to my page to see links for the books and everything else that Colin just mentioned and definitely, definitely go check them out. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at marhealthandperformance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day and see you next time.